special guest this week on the Real Guy Podcast, Mitchell Vitell. He explains the stepping stones to becoming a pro fisherman. He gives us the ins and outs on tournament fishing, a few old fishing stories with Captain Jeff the Lunker Dog, and Mitchell explains his rage on how the government responds to our environmental crisis. All this week on the Real Guy Podcast. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. Hello, this is Captain Jeff, and welcome to the Real Guy Podcast. Today, Mitchell Vitale. Been wanting to get him on the podcast for a long time. Mitchell, thanks for coming into the Lunker Dog Studios. Thanks for having me. Glad to finally get in here. Dude, you know, it's the Real Guy Podcast, and out of all the people that I know, I don't know anybody that's more of a real guy than you. <laughs> that's so, an honor, man. So welcome. Jeez, thanks. Yeah. Very far and few people grew up here in Fort Lauderdale, born and raised. Even fewer people grew up in the fishing industry. And it's funny that you're in here today because they just took away ADOC. Yeah. yeah. And for people, if you don't know what ADOC is, ADOC is a dock that we've had here in Fort Lauderdale since like 1939. And people have come here to enjoy sport fishing and have gone down to that dock since then. And just this week, we eliminated ADOC here in Fort Lauderdale to build more condos, <laughs> shopping centers, restaurants, restaurants, and everything but what you would think Fort Lauderdale Beach was originally all about. Right, right. Mitch, what was your first? What was your first memories of Fort Lauderdale Beach? Um, lots of people, lots of people, crowded, crowded, crowded. But uh, yeah, the charter dock. You know, like just going down there, seeing what they were doing. My mom would be, you know, we'd be at dinner around the corner or something and sneak away, go down there. And, What's going on down here? You got fish going on here. <laughs> I like this. Right. And uh, yeah, just. See, the charter dock to me, that was the place where when I went to the beach on my bike as a kid, that was like just a stop. Like you had to go by there. Yeah. You see what they were catching, all those giant sharks that were hanging out. Yep. The captains running back and forth. Seeing the drama, seeing, you know, who's yelling at who. Right. And the... Um, who was on somebody's spot, <laughs> cutting their line off. Now, you actually worked on ADOC, no? Yeah, yeah, a few years. That's uh, kind of how I got my start in uh, real fishing. You know, I fished the canals and stuff around here when I was a kid, whatever I could do on my bike and the pier, you know, spent most of high school in the pier doing whatever I could to catch something out there and then uh, had some buddies with boats and did a little of that and then one guy knew another guy and they needed a mate so jumped on it I was about 19 and uh, took a full-time job down there and man we fished a lot it was uh, it was a good experience caught a lot of fish and what do you mean a lot once twice a day two trips a day and most of the, you know, 200 days a year, we were, we were booked. We were uh, one of the more successful boats down there. And what boat were you on? It was called the Dr. Hook, but uh, it was a 40, 45 Hatteras. So we were one of the nicer boats down there at the time. I remember the Dr. Hook. Yeah, yeah. And uh, did a little bit on the Happy Day. I think uh, there was one boat called the Lafitte, I think it was. I don't know. Right. Old Post, you know. Right. The um, what people don't realize is a dock in Fort Lauderdale was the birthplace of some of the most 
famous captains in the world. Did oh, you have, yeah. Did you have experience with some of those guys? Yeah, Rick Brady. I mean, he's the standout guy. Tommy Zach, that's another one. I mean, I learned a lot from those guys. Uh, Kunta Smith, you know, he's Skip Smith's brother, the whole legacy there. Um, geez, Jack Plackard, number one deal. Uh, Andy Moise, you know, he fished a bit down there. Um, yeah, Andrew Kennedy. Geez, there's a ton of them. I mean... Right. And that's, um, it's hard for people to, to understand that ADOC was a big part of the foundation of Fort Lauderdale Beach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, one for, if you wanted to get into fishing, I mean, that was like, that's, you graduated to that next thing and, you know, you got your experience, but yeah, I mean, that started boating down here really is the fishermen. They were the ones building boats. There was a yacht or two, but the fishing boats were what were it down here. Right. I mean, that was that was a goal for a lot of people. Get to Florida to go fishing. Get to Fort Lauderdale specifically. That's how I ended up here. <laughs> My father moved from Massachusetts, had a sport fish boat in Gloucester, and couldn't stand the fact that eight out of the 12 months he wasn't fishing, which landed us here in Fort Lauderdale in 1975. And for no other reason did we come here except to fish. <laughs> and we weren't the only ones. You know I mean, that's a little bit before your time. But we weren't the only ones. And the growth of Fort Lauderdale Beach started with fishing, the beach, surfing. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was a real beach town. Right, right. And um, why would you live in Weston? I never understood that. The beach is here. Right. Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember the city of Weston when it first opened up? That people were actually moving from the Isles and Los Olas and Rio Vista to move out to Weston. Yep. To be next to Dan Marino. <laughs> yeah, bizarre. I didn't understand it, and I mean, relatively speaking, now they are they are close to the beach, but I don't want to live out there. Not unless I'm right. fishing or hunting or something. Right. <laughs> So you start. You started off being a professional fisherman, um, pretty young age. Say sixteen it was when you went down there. Uh, Nineteen is when I started. Yeah, I was working at Shooters for a while, and then uh, got a job on a dock, and then uh, got a job on a private boat. You know, for summer trips, and you know, because it gets a little slow, or it used to get pretty slow during the summer on the a dock there, and uh, yeah, got a job on a private boat and did like a whole tour of the bahamas blown away just you know i'd been there a couple times with my family but nothing like seeing it from the other angle and i was like man all right there's there's marlin out here there's big fish out here i need to get on a boat that knows how to do this and you know i started asking around and you know finally found the right boat and committed to them and kind of took it off from there started really fishing living in the bahamas uh, it was a book called The Cool Runnings, and uh, he gave us a lot of opportunity to just fish and kind of do what we want. I was with uh, John Stevens working over there, and uh, we had a 55 Viking, and we just fished a lot and learned to live off the land a bit and learned the Bahamas, learned the Abacos a lot. And were you doing tournament fishing back then? Yeah, that's when we first started tournament fishing in the Bahamas, the BBCs when they were around, a couple other smaller ones in between, and then... Got to go down to Turks and Caicos, do those. And, you know, every year 
we'd spend a little time in each place and, you know, spend a month or two in Turks and Caicos, then go to St. Thomas for two or three months. And, you know, that way you really learn the place and start getting into a rhythm and all that. And, you know, once I got to St. Thomas, it was on. I mean, it was like, all right, we can catch a lot of them. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, I was just full on from there. Right. The evolution of, of sport fishing boats in the time that you were doing the work out there in Bahamas went from like the old 45 Hatteras that could do about 12 to 14 knots to the 63 Spencers that could do 40 knots. Oh, yeah. E plus. Take us through that a little bit. Yeah, it was it's uh, it's pretty amazing. You know, like the boats were pretty much just able to get you out there and be roomy. And, you know, they weren't sporty. They were called sport fish, but they weren't truly sporty. It was kind of you know, diesel, smoke all the time. You're changing your shirt through the day because it was turning gray. <laughs> and then, you know, the th things just got more efficient. And the biggest improvement was the ride on these boats. I mean, the difference in riding in anything compared to a modern sport fish is like, you know, are they even paying attention to what's going on? Right. You know, to be able to go 40 knots in six to eight foot seas and not really beat, you know, beat your teeth out. It's amazing, you know. Now, and they're they're throwing money at it, but you know. <laughs> no, truly, truly amazing. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, then just like all the the fishermen's ideas that have gone into sport fishing to make it better, everything a little easier when you're when you're fishing, you know. Just the builders working with you, and then you know all the vendors that make all the stuff working with the builders to you know make it work. You know, LP is a big one. That's you know just every sport fish has two LPs minimum. Right. And now they're making them so they build them in and it's Wi-Fi and this and that. And then, you know, you got these pump companies coming out with these amazing pumps, hooker pumps. They, you know, they'll, they'll flow thousands of gallons in, a, in an hour. You know, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, just safer, everything, you know, it's just all better. Now, in my memory serves me right. You actually had uh, a guy you're working for that, paid you to go up to the Spencer Boat Company and help assist putting together a brand new custom boat. Yeah, yeah, that was a great experience. So, you know, working on boats, every year you got to go to the boatyard. So, you know, over time I started working on these boats and then we do a refit. So I had a lot of experience in the yard and doing, you know, just modernizations of things, you know, we used to call it maritized things, you know, just go that little extra to make it that much better. And uh, yeah, we refit a Merit for eight months there and that I learned a ton there. And then, uh, yeah, we got to go up and build the Betsy, um, 87 foot Spencer and it was pretty cool because we uh, built it with quad pods. So there's four pods on the bottom, eight propellers, all able to run individually and you know, it was just a, a more efficient way to do things, but fortunately they didn't really go too far with it. It works. It's amazing. The boat handles better than, you know, most 70 footers out there, even 60 footers being as large as it is. It's, it's just, you know, it can maneuver well. Hmm. You would never think that a boat that big would be able to maneuver well enough to catch big Marlin. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. I mean, yeah. Insane. And those guys have gone on to be some of the, you know, top marlin fishermen in the world. Like, I think Mike might really hold the record for the most. 
Really? Yeah, the owner for that. Most in the Atlantic, for sure. Now you did um, you did mostly recreational fishing with that guy out in. Um, yeah, he the, didn't like the tournament fish. We just fished hard. Right. What can you What can you tell the listeners? The biggest difference between recreational fishing with a guy like that that has that kind of dough, as opposed to tournament fishing. So the yeah the the guy that just really likes to catch them, you know, and you can go when you want. You know, you don't have to go under the, you know, the, the days that you have to tournament fish. You're not fishing with a hundred other boats. You know, there's, it, you can, you can catch more, you know, there's not, not a lot more pressure. You can enjoy your day while you're fishing, right. you know. Um, and you're, you're most likely going to be going more often, I think. You know, the tournament guys, they kind of get to a place you fish a little bit before you fish the tournament and then they're off, you know, like they, they might do a couple tournaments a year or if they're a strictly tournament boat, you know, they'll fish in between, but you know, some of these recreational guys, they can fish a lot. Right. They can really bang out the trips. It seems to me like when you're tournament fishing, probably 80% of your time is in prep. Oh yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Cause I guess so. You want to do everything fresh for the tournament. When you're just rolling with it, you're just doing it on the fly, and, you know, it's not quite as important. I don't want to say that. It's always important. you got to catch everyone. But, you know, just keeping everything tuned in as you're flying, you know, as you're going. Right. How many hours? How many hours would it take you to get ready for a tournament? Let's say you fished a tournament oh, in St. Thomas. It's days. I mean, the more t- time you you get the better prepared you are and especially if you can fish a little before being part of the preparation you know make sure everything's in the right positions when you're ready to go and you know make sure your stuff works you know for the conditions and you know that stuff not just the knots and the connections and the line and blah 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 all right right well i mean today with amazon things are so much easier we can get stuff to deliver to your house but i can remember getting ready for billfish tournaments and i mean literally i'd put 300 400 miles on my car the three days before the tournament because i'm going to miami for one thing i'm going to palm beach for another i'm running from the east side of town to the west side of town making sure everything's in order oh yeah and you still got to put your hands on it in my opinion right you know you got to make sure it's exactly that sleeve that fits that line and the exact size hook that you need and make sure they're not flawed because you know you get that kind of stuff but uh yeah i mean that's kind of the half the fun <laughs> doing the prep getting the stuff getting everything all right well we couldn't get that but we can use this and you know so when you when you're tournament fishing okay you picking your location now you go in there with um like a distinct strategy um no i mean you start paying attention to the weather and stuff like that as soon you know as soon as you know try to find out who's catching what and then when you get there you got to go fishing you know you got to pre-fish see what's going on see where not to fish um you know with all this technology now you know people are doing getting the you know the water temps and stuff live and then they have the sonar so they know where to go they get the side scan going and okay, there's marlin here, <laughs> let's fish, you know, or nope, there's nothing here, we're not marking bait, there's no marlin, keep moving, go to the next spot. So you're doing the, the pre-fishing is probably just as important. Oh, yeah, and, you know, 
we do I, I fish with a lot of people that were more recently because you know I freelance a bit and they're just kind of going into the tournament without any you know they haven't been fishing at all you know they're coming from somewhere else oh we want to fish this tournament it sounds fun okay how many days can we pre-fish oh we'll get a day or two in okay you know that limits you because there's guys that have been there fishing all season you know they're in a rhythm they know where to go every day you know they're going to their spots that's not working they're banging over to another spot you know so you get there and you kind of it's tough you know you, the more prep you can get the more pre-fish days you can get the more rhythm you can get the better your chances are right right now when you were doing the um going from location to location um i mean some guys have tournament teams that are fairly structured did you guys have structured teams most of the time or would you get ringers from different areas um both both Never, you know like a lot of the tournaments limit you maybe one professional angler some are just you know jungle rules they'll just pass that you know you can pass the rod off you can do whatever you, whatever it takes to get it in the boat but um a lot of them have rules where you can't have a professional so it's whatever you get is what you get right. and who knows what kind of angler you get because <laughs> they might not have been you know trolling which you know it, it's not easy feeding fish you know trolling live bait or you know dead baits they come up on the teasers you're doing a switch over you know it's it's there's a lot of steps to it so it's it's not easy it takes practice you know like anything and uh you're going up against guys that do it all the time you know so you might get 10 shots and maybe catch one right so at least we know we're doing our job when we're getting the bites but it's really hard when the boss misses them <laughs> <laughs> talk about the dynamic with the bosses on the boat um, well, some are really participate and they want to be the angler. And a lot of them just sit back like a, you know, race team owner and just watch the wheels turn. And what would you prefer? Um, the one that wants to participate because, you know, they're the one that's going to be in it longer. You know, if they're into it, they're into it. Right. Right. And I, I think that's I think that's the hardest thing about um, working for private owners is you're only going to be as good as your owner. Right. Yeah. Well, or his budget. Right. Right. <laughs> now, would you, would you agree that um, for the most part, the guy with the most money wins? Um, no. 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 It's definitely you got to be fishy. I mean, you got to be able to to do it. You know, you can have all the money in the world. Your captain sucks. He sucks. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your team sucks. They. You know, they're not paying attention to all the details. You know, but you look good. The sport fish boats that are doing the tournament circuit now are so different from when I did tournaments in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, you show up and there are 80 footers that are doing 40 knots and they have a paid crew, of, say $200,000 on the boat, which is normal. Yeah, these guys, uh, they spend a lot of money, man. They, uh, you know, if they want to do it, it, it costs millions of dollars. You know, it's. And it shouldn't really be a thought, you know, because they should have a budget already set in advance. And, you know, this is what it's going to be if you want to go and do this X, Y, Z, travel the world, you know, put the hours on the boat, the maintenance, all that stuff. The yeah. fun part about it, though, you know, that they they put you in that position. That's why I started doing it. I was like, I, you know, my family, they weren't into fishing. They could never afford boats like that. Right. 
And I was like, how can I get access to this kind of fishing? And I was like, all right, whatever steps I got to take. If I grind it out on the charter dock, I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to, I'm going to go from there. And that's basically the, why most of us do it is to, you know, have access to this type of fishing, you know, however we got to do it. <laughs> right. See, that's the thing that is hard for me because so many kids, younger guys, you know, they reach out to me and they want to know, how do I become a professional fisherman? How can I put myself in a, you know, in the position to be good at, especially bill fishing in there's no real good answer to give them. Well, you told me a long time ago, the more you fish, the more you fish. That is good. And that really, that, I mean, I say it to myself all the time. You know, the more you're fishing, the more people are seeing you out there. There, You know, there's a buzz going on. All right, you know, whatever type of fishing you're doing, then, you know, you start getting the calls. Oh, well, you, you know, seeing the bait, you're doing this, where you're going, blah, blah, blah. And then you get more calls for work, you know, because, yeah, he's been out there hitting it hard. In today's day and age, okay, if you were to set up your own fishing team, walk me through that. Tell me your favorite boat, your favorite gear, where you'd like to fish, what you'd like to fish for. Well, I think it'd just be like me and my buddy Ray bass fishing. <laughs> right on. I mean, I, I love the bass fishing aspect because I can go out there and cast a thousand times and just get it out of my system. You know, the marlin fishing's you know, you're marlin fishing, trolling, that kind of stuff is what it is. But, you know, you're you're doing other stuff. You're rigging, you're, you know, all the other prep work. You're reeling stuff in, but you're not really physically casting all day, you know. Right. So you want to. You, you, I really like that. Yeah, you want to. But if I had the opportunity to have a sport fish boat and go for it, probably like a 57 Spencer and. Go from there. I don't know. <laughs> what part? What area would you like to fish? What's your favorite? It's got to be Costa Rica right now. I mean, it's been the best marlin fishing. It's calm most of the time. Um, you can catch big ones along with small ones. You need know, to get black marlin in there. Get the sailfish, and then yeah, it's pretty accessible. How much? Uh, how many days have you fished out in Costa Rica? Um, I don't know. It's like quite a few seasons three four seasons and uh you know a bunch of days scattered in between there right on my buddy Musso's up there right now or out there right now mm -hmm. did you see his photos of the big tunas he was getting the yeah. last few days yeah i know costa rica is just like there's a, it seems like there's always an alternative yeah yeah you know i mean like if, it's, if bill fish aren't doing their thing you got a, a lot of other different stuff to do i got i got a little lucky a couple of years ago i spent some time in los sueños with the family mm it was funny because all the sport fishing stuff that goes on there. It's unbelievable. Right. That marina is just. No, crazy. I mean. <laughs> crazy, unbelievable. Like, even for me. I mean, I went there. I looked at it. I was totally, like, did not feel. The cutting edge of every sport fish brand there is. Right. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is we went there. We didn't do any fishing. We did everything but fishing. We were doing the, you know, the kayaking and the ATVing and zip lining and going through the jungle looking for friggin monkeys and anything else but we didn't do any fishing it was like my time off and i'm sitting there in los Suenos and i'm looking at the harbor the whole time and the boats you know and i'm trying to see who's going in and out they weren't doing a lot of fishing when i was there, there was no tournament going on or anything and i tried to go down and talk to some of the mates and the captains and 
fairly unsuccessful. Yeah, they're they're busy, you know. <laughs> busy, that's a good way to put it. Dude, they thought I was a douchebag. Yeah, yeah. I was down a there, walker dog shirt on. I was just down there kind of smiling, you know, trying to make a little bit of conversation. I was like, definitely not in the circle. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Well, I wasn't yeah. feeling it in Las Vegas. cold, huh? But I was feeling it in, uh, in Costa Rica itself. Yeah, yeah. I want to go down there and do the snook thing. Like, you know, there's giant ones down there. You should do that. I haven't done that either. Yeah, just playing a trip. I used to go down there to surf. But yeah, do, do a little bit of both or something. Dude, know? I'm so fat. My lungs are so bad now. Surfing's <laughs> so out of the question. I might be like, even the kayaking was, was hard for me out there. The um, but the different the difference between charter fishing, tournament fishing, and recreational fishing. You know, I freelanced for a long time, and and that was a good way to get to do a lot more stuff. You know, fish a bit in the Bahamas, fish the local tournaments do some charters, you know, dabble in a little bit of everything. And, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, it's always been a good way to make money too, you know, it, and it's getting better and better. You know, some of these captains are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you know? Yeah. The best, uh, the best I've ever seen it has been just recently, unfortunately. Well, actually at this point, millions, some of these guys in the Gulf right. with their winnings, you know? Right. I mean, definitely the, you know, there's more of a, of potential to make more money in the industry and actually able to do something but the number of boats um like the average guys not doing the tournament scene you know what i mean like these guys are like crazy loaded yeah yeah like Big it, used budgets. To, it used to be like you could be loaded and do it now you're like competing against crazy loaded and if you're not crazy loaded the chance of you being able to compete is really tough yeah, and it makes things just go smoother, being able to have all the equipment that you need. And, you know, it seems like it's, I don't know, a little over the top, but it it makes the difference. I mean, in the numbers people are putting up these days, you know, I mean, there's definitely more fish around in some aspects, but they're catching them all. You know, they're not, they're not letting them get by, you know. Right, right. One of the... Um... One of the things I don't know if the listeners know, but Mitchell and I did some tournaments together when we put <laughs> together the, the Zindog. And the philosophy there was we were going to fish in an area that we both knew pretty well. And it was okay to try to compete with a slower boat. And our boat was maybe a half a million dollar boat where everybody else's Yeah, boat. we didn't have the, the big flash budget, but we had the vessel to get us out there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and both of our philosophies was that because we knew the area that we would be able to compete with the fancy guys, put it that way. Yeah. And it worked in that particular situation. Yeah, well we got fourth? I think by time or something. Well we tied for th- we tied for third tied for with third. like three other boats. And the funny thing about that it was the Bum Billfish Championship, which we shouldn't have been able to fish in the first place. The only reason we were able to fish that is because we knew the girl that was running the tournament, and she let us enter the boat into the into the tournament. And in hindsight, it probably would have been better off for us not to win that tournament. Could you imagine how pissed off everybody would have been <laughs> if we'd end up winning the BBC and not fish any of the other tournaments on an old, on, on an old but a new lobster boat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we definitely turned some heads. Yeah, it was good. Flying some flags and... Yeah, it's good. Some of the best days, some of the best days, um, 
uh, some of the best days of my fishing life was that because it was a fr like you I always work for everybody else so when I was doing those tournaments out in the Bahamas it wasn't my boat I mean I wasn't calling the shots I wasn't being able to I was yeah I was doing things for everybody else and in that particular scenario is actually we were doing it for ourselves yeah and it just made it feel so much more like fishing the funniest part of this whole thing is Jeff tells me yeah, let's pull mullet dredges. All right. So he gets the dredges. How are we going to pull them? Off the transom. All right. All right, we're going to have to figure this out. All right, we'll get some rope, get some line. Figure, we're going to figure this out. All right, you got mullets? Does Jeff have mullets? <laughs> we got to go get them out of the freezer. Jeff's got his old mullets in the freezer in garbage bags. I got hundreds of mullets. <laughs> he starts digging out some old tools for getting the spine out what are the you know deboner the deboner the and oh, oh man do we have pin rigs no we're gonna twist them all oh man okay <laughs> well how fast are we gonna get over there well it only goes about 14 knots right you know cruising 14 you know try to so burn I had less than 30 gallons I had a lot hour. of time i had a lot of time on the way over to abaco and uh yeah we pulled dredges off flat lines off the the transom Right, you well, could barely pull those things in. <laughs> yeah. So so we got trip, we got uh, double banger dredges running <laughs> off the transom with rope, and poor Mitchell's down there pulling it in. And it just happened to be like one of the weediest times that I've spent oh, yeah. over in the uh, Abaco. So there's weeds everywhere, and Mitchell's hustling. But to your point, what happened? How long do we have a dredge in the water before a blue marlin <laughs> popped up? It was minutes. I don't even think I had the spread. I think I just finished putting the spread out, and I turned, and there was grass on the dredge. Pulled on it, and I was like, there's a marlin down there. <laughs> That's right. Now, the dredge thing, I um, I would have done the dredge fishing a lot more over my career if I'd had mates like you. Oh, well, yeah. You know what I mean? That's not for just everybody. You can't ask just anybody to do dredge fishing with you. So I was kind of like chomping at the bits when we did those tournaments to do that kind of thing. Yeah. And that particular boat, I was sold. Right. I was sold on oh, pulling big dredges. Crystal clear out the back, you know. I mean, not a no, not an ounce of wash. Yeah, that was that was that was a, that was a, a great moment in my life to be able to fish on my own sport fish boat. Yeah, you built that thing up. Built it myself. Fished in a tournament that I've always worked for somebody in. But we had a house there, so I would watch it, the tournament go by over and over and over again, just thinking to myself, one day I'm going to fish that son of a bitch on my own boat. And then when I did, I had Mitchell with me, and we had a great time. And Mitchell was all about winning. Mitchell was all about the game plan. And we had somebody on our boat with us that did not have the same mindset as Mitchell. Yeah. You want to take him through that story? Yeah, he just, he wanted to be a part of it, but he was kind of, <clears throat> I think he was just in awe of being in the Bahamas. Right. And, you know, wanted to take sun and go get a cocktail. And it's like, man, we gotta, we gotta make, we gotta make bait here. We gotta twist mullets. <laughs> so, so as, as the other guy was, and I'm not gonna mention any names, but as oh. the other guy was hanging out at the bar trying to get laid yeah just doing it. got it done that irritated the piss out of you oh yeah i fired him yeah after uh 
I think it was the third day. I was like, just stay, you know where the bow is? Go to the bow. <laughs> the thing was, is, is Mitchell had a mindset that we were there to win the tournament. We weren't there to participate. We weren't there to hang out in the Bahamas. We, we were there for one reason, for one reason only. His mindset was to, to win this tournament. The other guy that we had on the boat did not have the same mindset. And most of the time, guys in your position, Mitch, are forced to deal with that other guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, most of the time, we're putting teams together with people we know, you know, have some kind of friendship with, you know, because you, know, you travel around and it's it's the same guys. You go to St. Thomas, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, you, you're shaking hands with your buddies that you've spent time somewhere else with. So, you know, we kind of shuffle around. Some new guys come in here and there, but, you know, it's just because somebody else knew him. I didn't know, I didn't know that guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. He, he, you know, he was very young and didn't know what to expect, you know, and I think he got thrown into the fire a bit. But, he, you know, he wasn't helping the situation in any way. So I just, you know, better without him than to have the space taken up. So we ended up sending the kid home. <laughs> I mean, he hung out. He hung up during the first tournament. He was kind of in the way. But more, more importantly, it was, it, was, it was hard to focus with him on the boat. We're better off without him. And of all the tournaments that I did over the years, it was the first time they'd ever sent a guy home. And... I wouldn't have done that if Mitchell wasn't so... Oh, I feel in, like a bad guy now. Well, no. That's <laughs> that's the difference between being a successful tournament fisherman as opposed to just doing well, tournaments. Know, I think he learned something because I think he's still in the industry. He is still in the industry, and I'm sure he learned something. Yeah. And, and we all had those moments of, like, you know, get get reamed out because you're, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Well, and that's and I uh, never like getting reamed out, so I always try to pay attention. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, in 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 other um, recordings, like I did a recording not too long ago, and we were comparing professional fishermen to other professional athletes. Mm -hmm. And it'd be like you know you're 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 on the football field, and everybody out there is a pro except for one guy. Yeah, that makes it tough. That guy has to go home. And in this particular in this particular scenario, is is exactly what happened. But so many people don't understand. Unless you have worked in the industry, unless you've participated in tournaments, they, they call it sport fishing because it's a sport. And if you want to be competitive in any type of sport, you have to apply yourself. Practice and practice, yeah. practice, practice, practice. And the young guys that first get on the boats, there's no way for them to understand that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Or unless they want it, you know, and that's, you know, the real fishermen want it. They're just going to get it however they can get it. Right. And, and you, those are the guys that you try to find that are, you know, fishing on the side of the road every day. You see them driving around with this rod hanging out of the truck, you know. That guy's fishing. Right. <laughs> right. You kind of know where his priorities are. Yeah. The, um, who's your biggest mentor growing up in the fishing world? Who? You can name a couple. That's, but Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say John Stevens really, like set the path of like you know being meticulous just you know this is what it takes we straighten hooks we don't pull knots you know every crimp is perfect you know we tie knots together we do you know just perfect keeping everything perfect um rick brady you know he showed me 
a lot of the basics when I was coming up on the charter dock. Um, you know, how to how to rig a ballyhoo. You know, someone had to show you. Sure. Um, George Shorty Washington, remember him? I do remember Shorty. Yeah, I worked at uh, Beach Bait and Tackle when I was a kid, and I used to help him package bait. And you know, then I started seeing the fundamentals of twisting wire and all that kind of stuff, and why you twist it, and not wrap it, and you know why it works a lot of that stuff just hanging out in the environment and then uh uh do you want to hear something want to hear something kind of weird about shorty so the tackle shop that i use down in miami now bait him up tackle mm-hmm. they have a guy that looks like shorty <laughs> not quite as short as shorty was sounds like shorty and guess what his name is <laughs> shorty his name is wow. shorty and he didn't know about the old shorty the picture you know Shorty's live bait or Shorty's uh, rig bait. Shorty's rig bait, exactly. He had no idea about Shorty, so I'm buying my crabs in there the other day, and I told him about Shorty, and I sit there and I spent 20 minutes, you know, telling him stories about you know Shorty and how famous he was for his rig baits and that kind of thing, and I just think it's ironic that here we are, you know, I don't know how long Shorty's been gone, maybe 15 years or so or more. We got a new Shorty at the bait him up tackle. Nice. I gotta beat this guy. Yeah, he'll save you a dozen if you need. You call up ahead of time. Right. Tell him who you are. Tell him your friends are the longer dogs. He's on tell the him. team. Right, save you a dozen. But, um, yeah, pretty ironic. Guys like Shorty to me, guys like that is what I miss most about old Fort Lauderdale. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I used to ride my bike to Boyd's Bait and Tackle or to Beach Bait Bait and Tackle. Or Roy's. But Shorty worked for Boyd's and Beach yeah. Bait. yeah. And I would sit, I would ride my bike to go to the tackle shop and try to time it up when Shorty was rigging baits. And I would just sit there and watch. Yeah. It was a thing. Like. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 it inspired me, you know, growing up that I could be as good as him. Or this is the standard of which, how you had to perform mm-hmm. as far as rigging your baits and that kind of thing. In today's world, do you know how hard it is for, say, a teenager right? If it's to find that guy? Yeah, you got to be in that loop, you know? Got to have a dad with a boat and a dad that knows what he's doing and a budget, you know? Right. And, you know, and, it, and, and that's what crushes me about the new sport fishing world. Right? Unless you're a trust fund kid. I mean, how in the world? Well, there's guys out there. There's some charter guys. You know, there's guys that are getting out there. I mean, you know, they, they got a boat. You know, Taco's uh, son, uh, Lewis. Yes. Hooked up. He uh, he does his business here in town. And then he gets out of town. He goes down to Cat Island with his charter boat. And he does like a month or two months down there and just marlin fishes and does it. You know, right there with the mix of the rest of the fancy sport fish boats that are you know all the custom boats and there he is on his little 45 hatteras and i mean it's strong you know he's doing it cat island that reminds me of you and i going in tupper's boat down to cat island you talk about having to roll with the punches mitchell and i were on a 1968 wooden (laughs) huckins that this guy mark tupper rebuilt in more of a yacht than a sport fish well it was a huckins (laughs) whatever you want to call it and um (laughs) <laughs> we went to now you weren't with me when we went to Moorhead City right in that boat no so in Moorhead City we, we fished a tread barter tournament and 
during that Tread Barter tournament, they're raising money for the Boys and Girls Club. So Mr. Tupper on the old 1968 wooden Huckins was selling a charter out to Cat Island, which he would then donate the money towards the Boys and Girls Club. So he sells this package to these people, and then we come back to Fort Lauderdale and we have to put it together. So I call up Mitchell. I said, Mitchell, we're going to take this old 1968 boat out to Cat Island with some people and entertain them for a week or so. And what an experience it was. <laughs> an adventure. What was going through your mind when we were getting ready for that trip? Oh, just, I mean, what are we getting into? I can't believe we're in this old boat. And we're going to go from, I think I flew into Nassau, right? Yeah, we had the boat in Nassau. Yeah. You flew into Nassau and took it from there. Took it from there. Whew, I'm glad I didn't have to do the trip from Florida to Nassau. <laughs> but we made it, you know, cleaned the boat up. Ton of prep. Again, you know, just, oh, we have the tackle, but, you know, nothing's nothing's really the real tackle. So make do with what you got, you know, bring some lures and whatnot. And, yeah, we made it happen. Caught some big mahis, some wahoos, had some billfish up, but... We didn't get off. a billfish that that trip. That totally crushed me. Yeah, like my whole thing. Was Kareem, like, right? Kareem was the guy. Was Kareem? The, yeah, Kareem was the guy that won the um, yeah. won the trip. Yeah, he was a great guy, and he loved it. Yeah, and Kareem is down there with Mitchell, totally happy with everything. He caught tunas, he caught mahi, he friggin' had the you know caught the biggest fish of his life and all this stuff. And I'm upstairs like the grumpy old captain, you know. And dude, that was twenty years ago. <laughs> that was 20 years ago, Mitch. I couldn't get that grumpy or that pissed off about not catching a marlin to this day. There's no way I had that kind of energy in me. But back then, you know, you're, you're young and you have to go through it. And for me, not catching a marlin on that trip was like huge failure. But looking back at it now, it's like, wow, what an accomplishment. Yeah, we made it. We made it there, made it back. Made it there, made it back, made people happy. Yeah. Tupper was happy. Kareem was happy. And we actually made it happen. Which brings me to my last point. Where do you find talent as a priority in being a great fisherman? It's got to be up there. I mean, you got to be, you got to have the, that finesse. Right. You know, you got to be fishy. Right. You know, you got to be thinking of, you know, just always thinking about it, I guess. Well, it's, and like in most professional sports, your average participant is not going to cut it. No. Like you have to be so good. You have to know what to do, when to do it from a safety standpoint, all the way to making the fish come in the boat. Yeah. There's, there's guys out there that I don't know how their mind works. Like. Am I always zigging when I should be zagging? Because it seems like they're always just making that proper turn or whatever or going to that right spot, like, fishy. You know, they seem to just have that sixth sense. Right. Now, talent's a big deal in any type of, in any type of professional sport or any type of sport at all. The most talented guy is important to have with you in order to be successful. And if you're fishing against... Superior talent, the chances of you winning are pretty much slim to none. Yeah, and having that talent on board 
carries the you know the team and keeps the morale up and like has your you have that confidence you know that confidence right i think confidence is a, is a, is the key thing and that fishing cha- the bbc championship that we did on the zen dog the tournament we did before that we lost i think eight marlin in a row using circle hooks and I started to panic on the second tournament. And I'm like, Mitch, I said, maybe we should just switch to J-hooks. And Mitchell said, Jeff, calm down. Stick with what the game plan was. Let's pull the dredges. Let's use the circle hooks. And then sure enough, in the very next tournament, I think we only missed one fish and got all the rest of the fish. Yeah, yeah. But having the talent and knowing what to do, I felt comfortable like conversing with you. Where nine out of ten times, I wouldn't have that. Yeah, you just the say boat. do it. Just, just right. I would it. have to call a shot, whether right, wrong, or indifferent. But when you have somebody that has the experience and the talent that you can bounce it off of, um, it's a, it's a, it's a unfair advantage. Definitely an unfair advantage to the guys that don't have that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're. It's always good to have the the best <laughs> it's always good to have the best now you sound like my old man <laughs> but you know like there's you know there's guys that are lucky you know not always the best fishermen you know but hell the, the big one just jumps on there every time yeah that's the one that that's the one that cripples everybody's um <laughs> mind and confidence when you, know, you spend all your time and energy to be the best you can be and then some newbie comes in and wins the big tournament yeah speaking of big tournaments, so it's the biggest tournament you ever won we won a big one-day payout of like 150 grand down in St. Thomas. Did that a couple times there, and uh, I don't know. There's been close, man. Jeez, a lot of close calls. A lot of close ones. Like yeah. had so, the numbers. So just explain, explain funny it, things happened. Explain to the listeners. Okay, so you get a, you, you get a 150 grand prize. How does it? normally work out between the captain and the mates and how the money distributed after the well that's something that's always negotiated before and can vary from boat to boat but in my opinion you're the millionaire i'm just the humble fisherman you know we kind of did this as a team let's break it up without any expenses just you know give us a cut and uh usually it's like 30 percent goes to a third goes to the crew and then you split it, you know, captain usually takes 10 and then the mates usually split the rest. Or, you know, if you have a generous captain, it gets, you know, split equally or, you know, just worked out before. Right. Right. The Because, um, you know, a lot of guys in the industry, um, they don't know when it's coming, but they are banking on getting that dough sooner or later. Maybe this year, maybe next year. Do you know guys that actually play the game that way? Um, I th- there were a couple guys that were able to do it to actually be winning enough to, you know, just have a, a tournament team. But you have, you know, you have a lot of guys pr- being a part of that team, putting money in and stuff like that. So it was broken up. Um, but yeah, they were able to to win enough to propel the whole operation. But uh, overall, I mean, you still got to buy the boat, you still got to do all that stuff. But right. you're always pretty much losing. Yeah, and that's <laughs> and, and I, get, I get that. Question. I mean, as far as like your the amount of money you're spending in the tournament and all that kind of stuff, how many tournaments you fish 
Right. You know, how many losses have you gotten? Right. It's not how much you're going to win. It's how much less you're going to lose. Yeah. When you're the owner of a sport fishing boat and want to participate in the tournament scene. And from the outside, you know, looking in, it's kind of hard for people to get it. But these boats are so expensive. I mean, yeah, they're putting 40 grand up now for the tournament to go be, you know, in all the categories. And, you know, and, and some of these tournaments, they're requiring it because they have so many participants right now. That they're saying, if you want to get in, you have to pay the whole across the board, all the bets, everything. Really, I yeah. didn't know that, because, yeah, I've ne- I've never been in the in a tournament where you were expected to pl- to play all the different yeah Calcuttas. I, I like it because it's like you want to be a big boy. This is this is big boy stuff. And well, what's what's forty grand when you spend eight million dollars on a boat and you spend two million dollars a year keeping it up? Right. I mean, that's just you know that's a bait order. Right now, have you have you worked for have you worked for guys that just couldn't part with their money? Like, didn't? Um, not really, because you go into it. But you know, I had guys that were spending fake money. You know, what do you of, mean fake money? They were just spending what they didn't have. Really? Until the repo man came. <laughs> yeah, they were like, "You need to bring the boat home now." Like we were down in down island. All right, well, there's a little wet. No, no, no. Like, you have to bring it now. Like, <laughs> 61 Viking. All right, well, do we have a fuel budget? Oh, well, chug home. <laughs> All right. Now, you did some tournament fishing out in Texas. Yeah, the Gulf. Yeah. That's, I love it. That's some hardcore shit, dude. If you like fishing, go to the Gulf. That'll that'll tell you if you really like fishing. Well, Bring bring the audience through a day of fishing in Texas as opposed to doing the Palm Beach Sailfish Tournament. Oh, well, yeah, it's not 9 to 5 or, you know, whatever, 8 to 4. You're leaving, you know, on a Thursday afternoon at, like, you know, varies from noon to 4. And you're running. You're running out. I mean, I think we ran over 250 miles on one boat just to get to a rig that they knew that there was going to be tunas at and big tunas equal big marlin so stay away from everybody else run that extra distance and so you're running all night long you know 250 miles one way one way insane fuel bladders on the deck on the bow i mean like you want to talk about serious teams that's serious teams like people on watches people doing sonar people just you know to make sure everybody's fed you know because you have 10 people on the boat for three days you know it's a a lot of stuff going on you're catching bait all night once you get to the rig you know until dawn and then you're switching over clean everything up you know change your clothes because you're covered in you know catching tunas you know we're catching six to ten pound tunas and putting them in the in the tubes and then cycling them out to get even better bait you know if we find better just as best as we can until about 5 a.m still dark put two baits out all right, here we go. And then you fish till dark, you know, however many fish you catch. And, you know, you're catching big t- yellowfin tunas. They're jumping all over the place. There's, I mean, some of the biggest marlin I've ever seen. Um, and then in on inshore, you know, like at 100 miles, you, you get the, uh, you know, the sails. Yeah, inshore 100 miles fishing. is inshore, right? Yeah, where you're actually, you know, in some kind of a depth, you know, 1,200 feet of water. Um you'll get the sails and the whites and the blues in there and the fishing can be amazing you know slams double slams plus multiple others 
See, I don't think I don't think a lot of people realize it about that um, off the coast of Texas how productive the fishing can be. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a pain in the ass, and you're spending all that time and energy traveling, and it's grueling and everything. But the payouts. Well, that's are there. a good recreational spot because you can pick your window. You know, you leave on Thursday, fish Friday, fish Saturday, chug in on Sunday. You know, like or run in on Sunday, chug out Thursday. You know, overnight ten knots. You know, some people casually do it, but most of them are pretty aggressive running at night and stuff like that. It's just dangerous, but well, sure I, is fun. I want to, um, I mean, I want to, I want to change topics here for a little bit because I've known you for a long time, and you've always been a very chill person, very monotone, able to handle your emotions. But when we had the big sewage spills here in um, Fort Lauderdale. And we set the record for the biggest sewage spills ever. It brought out a different side to you that I don't think any of us have ever seen. Well, I mean, can you, how did, I mean, how did it, what was going through your mind? What, what triggered that? It was the, let's call it fury. Apparent blatant abuse for the environment and them just not even care. Like, all right, you had an accident. You need to do something about that. Not just sweep it under the rug. You know, I, I get it. They're doing the sewage, you know, the pipes and stuff. But it's, you know, it's still leaking. And it, it, it's just like the ADOC, like everything else that I've been slowly learning. It's not about the public whatsoever. And that's what's so frustrating is like they just see their pockets getting lined. They keep building. They, there, there would be no other reason if they weren't getting rich off of it. Like what do they benefit if they don't? get rich right right it's it's obvious and you bring it up you try to say something to them about it and they throw it back in your face it's like there's no respect for the public you know the the concerned citizens voice you know their opinions and they're considered crazy people and it's just like it got my blood boiling i mean it was just so bad so you know taking a set against the mayor and whoever else is involved with this and you know, we had Ben Sorensen sit down with us, and that was that was the one thing that triggered me more than probably anything. Wasted our our time, you know, played us like fools. Sat there and said, "These are great ideas. I'm going to go back to my people with it." This is, and this was, you know, a month. It was March. So when did the spill happen? It was in like, whatever. It was a couple. It was a month or so later. And, you know, if I were to go to a meeting. Out of respect, I would bring a pen and paper if it meant anything, if it was something important. Right. Especially when it's a brainstorming meeting that was already, you know, discussed before. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty smart, but I don't retain all that much detail, especially when it's something important that people are, you know, cutting out of work to come and see. You, me, a couple other guys, you know. It was so disrespectful. And then he asked us for a ride home. Like, <laughs> dude, you, you already just kind of like got a free lunch, you know, this whole thing played us, spent two hours that you should be dealing with. Like, you should know this stuff already, you know? So, so it totally infuriated you that you're dealing with some schmuck yeah. about an issue that's so important. Right. And just the disrespect of not taking any notes or like, you know, like really showing some kind of 
substance there, you know, like that he was going to do something instead of the empty handshake, you know, and then that was it. That was all he ever did. Okay, so from that point on, you just couldn't handle it. Yeah, because I just don't do anything, you know, like. No, it's 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 infuriating. I don't understand. You know, it's like. You know, like you said, ADOC's gone. So the fishing industry is what started this town. The tourism started this town. You're hurting the waterway that we all came here for. Right. That's the reason that people are in Florida. We could be we could be doing this in out west, but no, people don't want that. Right. They want to see the ocean. They want to swim in the water. Right. They want to see the manatees. They want to go catch fish. Right. They want all those things that they know Florida to be, but you know i get it you got to make money you got you know we got to grow but a little bit of a responsible development would go a long way and you know i guess his term is limited so he's got to get his stuff done while he can or them but you know you see these guys quitting all the time right and they keep making these salaries up that are insane for what they're doing and they're quitting like there's better jobs or no there's something absolutely wrong going on that they don't want to be involved in. Right. Right. It's it's sad to see, you know, it's this is our this is my hometown and just th- they don't care about the environment whatsoever. Right. You know, people ask me, you know, do oh, do what do you think about DeSantis? What do you think about your mayor? What do you think about your commissioner? What do you think about this guy? And the only thing I can think of is how bad we are losing. All the way up the line. We are losing so bad our coastline is just getting exploited and demolished and people want me to like like these dudes and i can't not until they how are you how are they helping me in any way they're not right everything that people came to florida for the beach 40 percent of the water here in broward county you can't swim in on a weekly basis yep and they don't tell you that they hide it right right don't don't let the tourists know that there's a sewer overflowing into a storm drain directly at the paddleboard rental place, the jet ski place, the, the you know the the kayak place. Mm-hmm. It's right there. Right. The city doesn't tell those people what's going on. No, as a matter of fact, they try very hard to hide it. Yeah, and it is infuriating. And you know that these people in the government. You know that they know now. And by watching them do nothing. They know who I am. And I, you know that. I mean, I voice my opinion every time they make a post because other people need to say something or know. And it's catching on, you know, like people are starting to stand up for it a bit. But it's such a small amount. And I don't understand. Like, if you're living on the water and you have sewage in your backyard, isn't that a problem? Like, if... Right. You pay all this money to live here, you know, the taxes, you know, they're pretty much taxing everybody that used to own a house here out of here. And now these new people are moving in and they're just like, oh, is that the way it always is? No, it's not the way it always is. Do you think they even think about it at all? Because I Probably don't. Probably not. I don't. I don't think they think about it at all. And I think that's why um, a lot of cities in South Florida are somewhat soulless. Yeah. 
because the people that own the properties here, the people that are paying the taxes, could literally don't understand that they even should care. The biggest, you know, I, I love Fort Lauderdale because it's not Miami. And, you know, it was like because it was still, you know, manageable. You know, it wasn't so exploited in so, so many ways. Like, you know, how many local restaurants or bars still exist? They're all being replaced by these somewhat chain places, and they're not they're not working. You know, it 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 lasts a year or two, and then it disappears. You know, it's like places that have been here for twenty, thirty years, they get sold to you know Joe's Crab Shack. You're like, what, what the hell is that? You right. Know? Right. Now I love making fun of the people that um, go to Bahama Breeze. Like, who, who goes to Bahama Breeze? I don't know, but I roll by there and I'm just like... <laughs> Jam-packed. Right? Like all these people, those are the salt lifers. Yeah, those are the people that are... I'm living the... Those are the people that are passionate about the environment and the ocean. Parrot heads? They're maybe? all hanging out in Bahama Breeze. <laughs> instead of the beach itself. Oh, man. Or the boat, or the pier, or the charter dock, or whatever. Right. Yep. People are in love with air conditioning. <laughs> but they have a passion for the water. I don't know, Mitchell, there's a lawnmower going in the back, so oh, let's yeah. cut the podcast short. I've been dying to get you in here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for being on the Real Guy podcast. Oh, that was great, man. Glad I finally made it. On that dog. Oh, you know what? You get a, one of these brand new Real Guy podcast t-shirts. Ooh. I was going to give you one. It's a good color. I was going to give you one before you came on the podcast. No, then I would have never given you one. Right. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> on that dog, Mitch, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Let's go fishing.